This week on Art in the Air features mosaic glass artist Robin Kittleson, who creates her work using a classic Venetian technique. Next, we have new media artist Eric Souther, who uses a multiplicity of disciplines, virtual reality, and audiovisual performance. Our spotlight is with IU Northwest Exhibition and Project Coordinator Kathy Feeman, discussing the School of Arts student and teacher recruitment efforts and the high school art exhibition. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world. Welcome. You're listening to Art on the Air on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant through South Shore Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art on the Air streams live at WVLP.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus, is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, every Sunday at 7 p.m., also streaming live at lakeshorepublicradio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. And we'd like to welcome to Art on the Air uh, Spotlight, Kathy Feeman. He's the Exhibition and Project Coordinator for IU Northwest uh, School of Arts. And uh, she's going to talk a little bit about her background and everything, and also a special project coming up this summer with student and teacher recruitment. Kathy, welcome to Art of the Year Spotlight. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. Well, briefly tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your project at the School of Arts, which has been recently reorganized from uh, separate entities kind of under one umbrella. Right. Yes. Um, actually, I am an alumni of IU Northwest pre-School of the Arts. Uh, I graduated in 2015, and I actually got involved a little bit with recruitment while I was still a student doing some high school visits, you know, visits to art departments and things like that, doing presentations. And uh, I will say that um, I grew up in Chicago and then Northwest Indiana area, and I never knew about IU Northwest and did not know about the School of the Arts. So when I was introduced to the program, a friend of mine uh, had gone back for her degree also. And this is when we were at Arts on Grant, just before the years prior to this new building. And I went to visit her one summer while she was working in her studio. And uh, I got a taste of what was here. So um, this is just what, you know, I just call really a hidden gem. I mean, so many people don't know the program is here. And so now, yes, in um, 2018, shortly after we moved into the building, the School of the Arts was formed to encompass communication, fine arts, and performing arts all together. So, yeah, it's a, it's a brand new thing, and there's a lot of momentum and a lot going on. But I, um, firsthand, knowing what program has to offer here and our faculty, and now these resources are just so much better. So I'm I'm an advocate. So we're looking to bring people in and expose them to what we have here. 
So, Kathy, you got your, when you were going for your degree, you already had an art practice. How did getting your degree and going through that whole process change? Did it change what you, um, oh, the direction of your art? Very much so. Uh, right out of high school, I didn't really know very much about contemporary art. And I went to a commercial art school to be an illustrator just because I, I just didn't know what else to do. I'm fi- that seemed to make sense, but uh, it came back around full circle after my kids were getting older and I started rethinking what is it I really want to do. And I realized after visiting here with my friend and going to some of the thesis critiques and hearing students and faculty talk about art that I really needed a fine arts education. And so um, I really enjoyed the whole process. I, I think as an adult going back to school, I had a lot more appreciation for things that as an 18 year old, I would have thought my maybe a little mundane. But yeah, I, I just realized the importance of an education and being an artist, not just your studio practice, but understanding about art history and having a wider, a wider scope of art world and how I might want to participate in that and the conversation that I have with it. So um, I didn't see that as a young person, but I, I did see that coming back. So um, I, I think it really enabled me to look at making art and look at uh, collaboration in a whole different way. Tell us a little bit about this program you have. Of course, the Arts uh, and Science Building is brand new with great facilities, and we can talk about that later. But tell us about the what you have coming up uh, this summer uh, that's for, I guess, teachers and students. Yes. Well, specifically for art, uh, it's not just art educators, but for high school educators that was our primary focus, um, just as a way of connecting and building relationships with educators in our region and, and that extending into Chicago as well. We're so close to Chicago. Uh, but we uh, we thought it would be really great to open up our facilities um, in the summertime. Currently, the, the School of the Arts is pretty empty. There's a few studio classes that happen in summer, but summer school sessions are really coming packets so it doesn't work for everything so we have these great facilities they're quiet and um, we thought it'd be great to open that up for educators who want to do either creative research maybe maybe any uh, performing art educators want to come in and do something experimental or just open it up to possibilities and then you know we have this broadcasting studio here as well which is now expanding to include video so there's the possibility of podcasting or using those resources how many educators are you able to host and is there a second residency already in the works uh yes well this is a pilot program so we thought for this first year we were going to cap it at 10. Now, officially, the registration or the application process is closed for this year, but we have five educators um, who are all fine arts this year, which is understandable. It seems like the most obvious use of our space. Um, but we were going to accept up to 10. If there is somebody who hears this who wants to put in an application, they can contact me. That is at I-U-N-S-O-A at iu.edu. Uh, the residencies are going to start uh, in July, and they're two weeks, and it's flexible. The time frame is flexible, so residents can schedule when they're going to be here. The building is open seven days a week, so the facilities are open to really pretty much any schedule to 9 p.m. most days. Uh, so uh, we, we are planning to do this again next year. I'm sure that we'll get feedback and maybe expand on that a little bit next year, and hopefully to get some communication and performing arts educators in. Kathy Feeman, for Exhibition and Project Coordinator for IU Northwest School of Fine Arts. Thank you so much for being an Art of the Year Spotlight. Thank you. Thank you both. 
You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Art on the Air would like to wish you a happy and safe Independence Day weekend. We'd like to welcome to Art in the Air, specializing in the Venetian technique of kilmform mosaic glass uh, from Italy. Uh, our next artist from Geneva, Illinois, makes striking art glass of timeless modern beauty using this technique. It's a wonderful way. We'd like to welcome to Art in the Air, Robin Kittleson. Welcome to Art in the Air. Oh, welcome. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you. Well, first of all, Robin, we'd like to find out a little bit about you and uh, your background. Uh, I always like to say how we got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, I have always loved the arts. Ever since I was little, when I imagined what I would be doing in life, it was art related. I didn't know what it would be or where it would be, but it was just something that, um, you know, I took every art class I could, whether it was through the park district or my high school. Um, And so when I went into college, you know, I knew I wanted the arts. And um, fortunately, my parents said, well, how are you going to make a living? So that made me kind of back up and um, kind of reevaluate what I wanted to do. So I majored in graphic design. And, you know, a lot of that really carried on to what I do now. It was working with composition and color and textures and patterns, and it allowed me to make a living. So I was working full time as a graphic designer, but still had this um, desire to make things by hand. I always, um, I'm always fiddling with stuff. I'm always coloring or folding things. And um, so while I was working full time, I started to get back into my studio arts and um, started doing a few little shows here and there just to really get rid of what I was making. (laughs) I don't know how else to put that. And, um, you know, over time, I was able to make the transition from working at a job to turning what I love to do into what I do day to day. And uh, where did you study? Uh, Go to college and such as that? So I went to Washington University in St. Louis. They had an amazing art program. So I was introduced to a lot of different disciplines. Even though I majored in design, I was able to get into their ceramic studio and their printmaking studio and painting. Um, So it was really a very comprehensive program. And um, so I graduated there with a BFA. And then several years later, I I just continued to take classes, whether they were at the community college. I um, went short term out to Portland, Oregon, and went to an arts and crafts school where I played with metals and uh, fabric. Is, is that where you were introduced to glasses out there? Because glass is a very specialized, like most most universities or colleges don't offer glass. So when did you become interested in that? And that's true. I actually only found my way to glass probably 20 years ago. So I went through multiple disciplines. Um, The first industry or the first type of art I was doing at art fairs was textiles. Um, I was introduced to that out in Portland. And um, it really kind of took my design background and allowed me to do things more hands-on. And um, so I did hand-painted fabrics and I made things, I made home accessories out of those fabrics, but then I also sold the fabrics to 
clothing designers, hat designers, um, interior designers. I mean, so it was just a, a fun way to make things and get them out. And then, um, yeah, I, I stumbled into glass one day. I had always been intrigued by it, loved it. I actually wanted to take glass blowing when I was in college. Washington University had a glass blowing program. And you know, at one time, my parents are like, oh, I'm, I'm a known klutz in our family. And my family is like, <laughs> oh, you're really going to hurt yourself self doing that. And, you know, I was 18, 19 years old, and I never really listened to what they said. And, but then I, it's, I stopped. And I'm like, gosh, I probably really, really hurt myself. <laughs> so, myself with class. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like I said, about 20 years ago, I had a chance to try some glass and I was instantly hooked. And at the time and where I was living, I glass wasn't accessible. So on my own, I, I, after that first introduction, I bought a kiln like that same day and decided I was going to research and figure out everything there was to know about glass. And um, the fact that I wasn't taught it by somebody else, um, it was a difficult path, but one I'm grateful for because I had to figure out the, the chemistry and the science behind it. And so now I can look at things or think through problems and nothing seems inaccessible because I wasn't taught a specific technique. I was forced to figure out, you know, why it does what it does. So, um, and you've maintained that spirit because I remember one of the first conversations we had quite a few years ago, you were talking about experimenting by, by tossing minerals into the glass to see mm -hmm. how they react and, and the, different properties of it. So I think that that is probably a direct factor of, you know, always having that experimental brain going. It is. And you know, I'm always one for, I want to try it to see what happens. And even if I'm told, no, we don't do that, or oh, we don't mix these things. I understand that, but I still want to see for myself what happens. And some of the coolest things I've found have been just from experimenting or taking something that's a known um, way of working in glass and just putting a little twist on it. Like, you know, what if I change this one element, what happens? So it's, I'm, I'm always, you know, I don't know if it's challenging myself. It's just more of this, this um, nature of inquisitive, like, you know, trying to figure out what else to do. Uh, what's the technique that you use? I, I said in the opening, it's uh, inspired from a Venetian background, but you work in a specific uh, ancient technique. Uh, describe what that, the name of that process and what it is. So at, um, right now, my entire body of work is based on um, Murini. I pull cane. Um, which is pulling long, thin glass strands that have an internal pattern built within them, um, cutting those into small components and turning them on end. And when they're on end, that's when you see the internal pattern that was built into it. And so that has existed in glass for, uh, uh, I think it began in the Middle East thousands and thousands of years ago, but it was in the late 1800s that the Italians kind of revisited it. And that's where you see these, um, the little millefiori um, in blown glass vessels or in paperweights, jewelry. And so the, the idea was intriguing to me. Um, again, it kind of looked back into my design 
background because I was able to get the colors and the patterns and the textures that I was used to working with, certainly in design and in textiles. And so it kind of combined everything I love in, in one fell swoop. And so my goal was to take this existing tradition that's been widely used, but look at it in a slightly different way. Um, so that's why I started using them in mass and working in colorations that might be non-traditional, um, playing with opaque and transparent. You know, all of those have just evolved, kind of bringing my own design aesthetic to a very traditional way of working with glass. And that's actually one of the incredible, that's like such a beautiful thing. When you said um, to me, you know, I make my own canes, it just opens up a whole world for you and then just makes the piece so uniquely yours. Um, I just, and I love everything that you just said about, I love the mixture of the transparent and the opaque. And I hope everybody takes a look at your work because it's just absolutely exquisite and glasses glass is so captivating and you just take it to another level. It's gorgeous. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, glass is captivating. I've always loved it. Even as a young kid, I remember going to art fairs with my parents and always being intrigued with the glass. And I, I had never imagined that it was something I could work in. And so even today, you know, I'll be standing on the street at an art fair and look around and think, wow, this is really cool. I get to make glass. <laughs> I get to do this for a living. Actually, I was down, um, my studio's in the basement of our house. And so, you know, my kids pop in and out or, you know, I'll run down to do something quickly. But my son came down yesterday. We were just chatting about life things. And he just looked at what I was doing. And he's like, because, you know, I never really thought about what you do down here. And he's like, but I doubt anybody else's mom is sitting here with a blowtorch and molten glass. <laughs> <laughs> do they enjoy the arts? Are they um, drawn um, to them? They, my daughter's actually a college student. She's majoring in communication design as well. She um, is wildly talented in everything that she does. And she dabbles in all the studio arts like I did. Um, but, you know, as a very practical person, so figured she'll start in graphic design as well. And my son is, um, he is incredibly talented, but also um, he'll, he used to draw a lot. And then there, he reached an age where he realized that People could see what he was doing and comment on it. And he's kind of stopped it because of that. Like he just didn't like the, the fact that people could critique. But um, he is a beautiful writer and he plays music. So, I mean, he's in the arts, um, but he tries to keep it more internal rather than, you know, splashing it out there for everybody to see. You know, I had a question right. about your, one of your things in your, in your technique as you talk about uh, later on about cold working process and uh, how that works. So tell us what that is and or maybe even describe how, how your process is a little bit more, but what the cold working process is. So cold working, in my opinion, is what takes a, a, a okay or a nice piece and makes it exceptional. It's the, it's the process where um, after the whole piece is made, you go in and clean it up. And many people don't like it. It's very tedious and time consuming. And um, you're using loose 
grits. It's almost like sanding wood where you'd start with really coarse sandpaper and work your way down to fine sandpaper. And to me, it's an integral part of the um of the creation of the process, it makes the piece, like I said, just that much nicer. So my pieces, I hand sand the surface of every single piece, whether it's a small little bitty piece or a big one um, to remove the gloss and give it a nice satin finish. It smooths it. It makes it um, really fine to touch. It it just has a, a nice feel to it. I clean up all of my edges by grinding them. I do have a a machine. It's called a a lap wheel, a horizontal lap wheel, where I can put diamond hand pads or diamond pads on there and clean up all the edges. So between those two things, that one machine, and then mostly by hand, I get the piece to just a point of, um, in my opinion, like total refinement. It just looks and feels. And I don't know that the person looking at it would be able to put their finger on why the piece appeals to them more so, but it's usually those final little details that are what make the difference. The satin finish to it also is like, um, it's so luxurious looking. It's just very rich. Yeah. Um, It's um, what's nice about it is that you know, typically glass is glossy and when the light hits it, you get these big reflections or the light bounces off of it. And the fact that it's satin, the light gets trapped in there. And especially because I use some transparency, um, the piece looks illuminated rather than having just a big glare on it. So thank you for mentioning that. So what do you, um, so what, you know, I loved, I, and I read this, um, recently that, of course, like when you're a visual person and, and you're working with different colorways and palettes, you know, the whole world is your inspiration. And it just made me really giggle when you're like, oh, yeah, it was like on the corner of the cereal box. I just love that or whatever it was, <laughs> whatever. I just tore that off for reference later. It just really, <laughs> it's so true. I mean, everything is an inspiration. So when you, so what informs your decision to work on a a colorway? Is it just you're like, I feel green today or purple? And, and yes, sometimes that is the case. Um, you know, sometimes I'll see a color out, you know, and about and think, oh gosh, you know, I haven't played with lavender in a while. What would I mix with lavender to create something that's unique or different? Um, other times, you know, I, this is a business for me and I am out selling my work. And so there are certain colors that are popular for people, not necessarily like the entire palette, but I know, oh, you know, if I make something in this, you know, soft turquoise blue, it'll appeal to more people than something else. And so sometimes that first color is for my audience and then the other colors are for me. Yes. Because I really like to mix unexpected colors together or put even just a little pop of something in there that you normally wouldn't think would go with the other colors in the palette. Um, Most people think of my work for those high contrast um, complementary colors. But my hope is as you look at it, you realize that there's so much more in there. It's not just two or three colors, but it's more like 20, 25 colors that make up the overall piece. 
So how long is a, like, I'm fascinated with making the canes. So Mm -hmm. how long do you pull a cane? Um, What's the process? I mean, I don't know if you can talk about the process at all about it, but it's. Oh, sure. I, um, like I said, I have a studio in my house. And so I don't, um, I'm not a traditional glass blower. All of my work is formed in a kiln. So the way I make a my cane is through what we call a vitrograph kiln, which is a kiln that's elevated. And within that kiln is a crucible placed and in there, the glass is placed and it's heated. And so um, what I do is pull my cane from the bottom of that crucible so I can do it by myself. If you've ever seen glass blowing demos, they usually have partners and people, when they're pulling cane, they take this massive molten glass and they each grab one end and walk to opposite ends of the factory. And they, they pull these 30, 40 foot long cane. (laughs) I um, work by myself. So this contraption that I have allows me to do it without um, the need of a partner. And, um, and since I chop mine up to like, I don't know, seven millimeters or so, I don't need to pull long lengths. So each of my lengths that I'm pulling from the bottom of the suspended kiln, it's probably like three or four feet. Uh, And then I'll, but I'll pull 20, 30 of those. So when I start a piece, I, what I know is the color palette I want to create and the size of the finished piece I want to make. So I pull all my own cane based on weight. So, you know, One day I might only be making cane for an hour and a half to make a small piece, or I might be pulling cane for several hours to make a larger piece. It's just all based on, you know, when I have enough to complete the the project. You know, I was going to ask, uh, you know, since we're now coming out of the pandemic and COVID, and we've been asking our guests, how's that impacted you uh, over this past year or so in terms of, well, being out in public and everything, but also your work? Has it uh, inspired you to do more or pull in and you know, t- explore that? And of course, what are you looking forward to now that we're coming out of this? Well, um, it was a it was an abrupt halt to my <laughs> my exhibiting. I was I, I travel the country. Last year, I was in uh, California and then Arizona. And during the setup at the show in Arizona, um, they canceled it. And we all had to pack back up and head home. And, you know, I, I got home and I thought, okay, well, I've got a few weeks. I'm going to get organized, you know, take a almost like a little mini vacation at home, enjoy my family and then get back on the road. And it just kept getting extended. And at first I was kind of stunned because my livelihood was taken away and I wasn't quite sure what to do. I um, didn't have the financial means to buy lots of material to experiment because that was the first thing I wanted to do. I was like, okay, I've got this time. I want to play and experiment with all these ideas bouncing around in my head that I normally don't have time for. But then there was that financial real reality of, well, how am I going to do that? Um, so I, I honestly, I took a month or so and just focused on my family and uh, enjoying being home. And then um, thankfully due to like some government programs, certainly um, there were some small business loans. I was able to get my hands on a little bit of money, which then allowed me to play 
um, you know, I was able to open up my sketchbook, look at my years and years worth of ideas and things that I wanted to try that I hadn't had time for. I was able to get enough material to get started doing that. And I spent most of last year really trying to figure out what's next. Um, you know, how does my work that I'm doing now evolve into the next idea? And so I, uh, was able to do that and thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, lots of new products. And also what's beautiful about your work is that not only is it just an a, an object to be admired, but it's also functional. So within that beautiful piece, you can actually use it and then put it back on display again. You know, it's yeah. And that has always been important to me is um, making things that serve multiple purposes. And I always say it's it stems from my own needs. It's selfish. <laughs> we live in an old house. We don't have storage. So we have things in our home that sit on the fireplace and then hold a salad for dinner. And so that has always informed <laughs> how I approach um, the work that I create. The The stuff I played with last year kind of broke away from that, though. I was able to make things that just for the sake of having a, a, a beautiful little object. Right. Um, so that was, that was fun. And that, to me, felt um, kind of indulgent to make things that, you know, aren't for use, you know, I certainly, I appreciate art that for art's sake, you know, it's wonderful to have a sculpture sitting on your, you know, table, but that, that's not what, um, that's not how I've approached my body of work. And so it was fun to play with that. Are your, is your, some of your pieces found in shops and, uh, galleries, uh, where and where? Yes. The nest? Um, the nest. The nest. <laughs> Um, yeah, I when I started, I actually only sold to stores and galleries. I only did wholesale work. Uh, and I found I actually was lonely because I was only working in my studio. I'd see my family when they'd come home from school and from work. And um, I felt I really wanted to start interacting with people. So I started doing art shows and I enjoyed that so much that I shifted my focus to mainly doing those. But I have a handful of galleries around the country that I work with. Um, the Nest has a, a nice assortment, but we need to get more over there. Oh, yes. She opened um, last year. I picked up a new gallery in um, the Pacific Northwest on Whidbey Island, which is this, a, a place where so many glass artists are. So the fact that they had contacted me kind of floored me. Um, I have uh, work in a gallery in Chicago called Vale Craft Gallery, and I'm just dropping more stuff off there next week. That's why that's top of mind. And um, and then I do have some retail stores that purchase my work. Uh, they're just around. And it's usually somebody who finds me at a show and says, oh, by the way, do you wholesale? And so I, I try to keep it to a minimum. I don't want um, there to be multiple locations in any one area. And um, it's not something that I really want to get back into exclusively as my exclusive way of making a living. Cause again, then I would be lonely. So. <laughs> well, real quickly, Robin, tell us your website, uh, Facebook and any other ways that they can find you. Sure. I have a website, which is uh, www.robin, R-O-B-I-N, Kittleson, K-I- 
T-T-L-E-S-O-N.com. And I have a Facebook page, which is Robin Kittleson Glass and Instagram, again, Robin Kittleson Glass. And I try to post new work on Instagram, trying to get better at social media. (laughs) Well, we'd like to thank you. That's Robin Kittleson from Geneva, Illinois. Uh, Does wonderful uh, glass work of timeless modern beauty, contemporary, and she relies on an old Venetian technique in that kiln form. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Air and sharing your art experience. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. Next, we'd like to welcome to Art on the Air a new media artist who draws uh, from a multiplicity of disciplines, anthropology, linguistics, ritual, critical theory. He develops video instruments and integrates uh, technological and uh, cultural things. Uh, he has a way of seeing beyond the uh, qualities, uh, takes that and works in uh, map making, print, virtual reality, audiovisual performance, and a whole wide range. Please welcome Eric Salder to uh, Art on the Air. Thanks for Aloha. having me. Aloha. Welcome. It's good to see you. We'd like to ask you like, about your life journey to start with, and like I usually like to put it, how you got from where you were, where you grew up and everything like that, to where you are now. So, Eric, tell us your story. Sure. I, I was born in um, Kansas City, 1987. I was always into the arts. Um, my family moved us out to a, where I have other family in a small town in uh, northeast Missouri called Ethel, which is about a town of 100-some people. Uh, today it's it's maybe around fifty, so it's it's quite small. Um, lots of farming around those parts. Um, and after high school, or I, I applied to the Kansas City Art Institute, and I was a part of the very first uh, time-based uh, freshman foundations or a digital foundations at the Kansas City Art Institute, and um, was going to be a graphic designer. And uh, instantly found within the first semester was introduced to video uh, and had already done a bit of videos in high school, but not uh, in like a fine arts context Um, and was like, I, this is, this is for me. Um, It's way more dynamic. It's changing over time. There was some aspects of real time involved with editing and and being able to push around images. Uh, So there's certainly a more of an attraction there to me. And so I ended up getting changing my major to new media and um, further explored uh, video making, but also interactivity and started to, uh, I took a class over at UMKC, which was like electro com, uh, computer music. And they introduced, uh, well, so we, my friend and I got into something called Maximus P and Jitter, which is created by Cycling 74 out in California. And probably for the past two decades, 20 some years, maybe a little earlier, um, artists have been using this to create interactive uh, visual content and audio content, primarily on the audio side. So that's why there was classes like Kansas City Art Institute didn't even have it. So my friend and I started learning it and then I took that and then really got into um, being able to program um, things. So, you know, that would allow you to do interactive installations like moving in front of the camera, which would, trigger different videos on a screen, something like that. I worked for a, a kind of a strange company as an undergrad. I worked for Enduro Cycling Studios. So on the weekends, I would edit, edit bicycle videos. So the, 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 the company would have a theater type setting 
uh, and there'd be a projector of like seeing uh, landscapes of areas like we did a video in Ireland, we did a video in South Africa, Cape Town, we drove and did these like famous route bicycle routes. And then our job was to edit them together with like cultural information. And then it would be presented in a bicycling cycling class, um, which is, is, is actually how I met my wife. Um, trying to go to one of these classes to see how my videos were working. But I, I knew I wanted to do more and I was just starting to get a handle of my practice and what my art was was becoming about in undergrad. And um, I was really I was really interested in time, but also instruments that allow us to see time differently and understand new information. So that's I was really inspired by Edward Moybridge and Julius Murray early 1800s photographers that built their own tools to actually capture time for the first time, right? And so that's when you see those like iconic uh, gridded images of the horse running and the trip wires and it allowed really people to start to understand time in a different way. And those actual innovations of tool making led us to have the moving image and think about how impactful the moving image is to our society as a whole. Um, so that was like too exciting for me not to go directly into grad school. And so I had quite a few options. Um, I got it into UCSD and, um, to Alfred, but I really loved, fell in love with the experimental nature of Alfred university. And so they developed, they had a, an MFA in electronic integrated arts mm. and, um, from so from 2009 to 11, that was my grad school. And I developed a lot of videos and I used to do these really weird um, computer applications that I called aesthetic interfaces, which was actually using the graphical nature of Maximus P and Jitter to uh, create drawings, but they were also fully functional software that played, uh, for instance, like, a collection of sounds uh, from my body, uh, 900 sounds of itching, coughing, scratching. And this was based on a, a Buddhism quote that was like, to find oneself is to lose oneself amongst 10,000 things. Um, and so there's this like idea of a collection and database, which is in a lot of my work. So uh, Eric, with that, because I think you're referring to like, a, was it the mandala? Yeah. The mandala one that you did? That's a pretty early piece. And right, right. Cool. I remember that's the kind of the time that we like we met in like 2010, I think. And that was yeah. the work I'm familiar that I was initially f familiar with. And I know that you took like a, a whole bunch of different clips of yourself to create those mandalas. Did you ever experiment with like just like, like maybe one word that is said in different ways to see what kind of mandala happens with that or? Well, not exactly. But in grad school, I also did a piece uh, called Search Engine Vision, which is uh, pretty um, like internationally showcased work, um, which the first one was Search Engine Vision Chair, which is one word. And so it was a thousand videos of chair that would come back from a search result in YouTube. So you get a thousand chair videos. And I was looking for in the database of like mass consumers or mass users, and like producers, could you get a sense of the idea of chair? And this is an art historical like item, you know, like Joseph Kusos, one in three chairs. He had a picture of a chair, a 
like a definition of a chair and an actual chair. And this is kind of like the, the peak of conceptual art um, in the 70s. Um, so that, that kind of idea of like a database built on one idea or one word is kind of in that series, I think. Yeah, same with Buddha too. That's the sort of the same. Yeah, Buddha, Christ, uh, right. Isis, which Isis, yeah, which was in Art Prize in 2016, won, won the time based category. Yeah. Um, and that that I had wallpaper with, so you saw all 2,000 videos, and it's Isis, Egyptian goddess, and Isis terrorist group, and they kind of fight for semiotic dominance of what we think of when we think of the word Isis. What comes up first in the search engine? Uh, usually the terrorist group. <laughs> you you kind of have to to lead the search. And so this this you know it's also questioning like how we get information today, right? Like how do algorithms work? How are they giving you information based on geographical location or demographics? Like there's a lot of like weirdness around the, what the algorithm allows one to see. And, what it brings up when you search. You know, there's another older piece that I, I just want to mention too, which, um, you know, I, I love the beginning work because it, of course, informs where you, where you go to eventually. And, um, and I, I appreciate your archive of having that work so that people can go one way or the other, start with current work and go to older work or, or flip that around. But impermanence was like so interesting because it reminded me I mean, you talk about time trails, I think maybe that was one of your words. And it's, it's like a, it translates way beyond that too, because for me, it was like a lingering fragrance or a memory and it was just so evocative. And I, um, and so the time trails, that was, that was graduate work as well, right? The, uh, as you were working with. I guess, you know, you mentioned the Moybridge work earlier and thinking about this idea of seeing things or unseen connections and I so there's a way of that data helps me see like a micro versus macro view where I can zoom out and see the collection and, and start to find similarities across things um, and that's that's always been kind of interesting like Marshall McLuhan is a media theorist um, I think from the 60s and 50s or 50s and 60s um, you know he would say that the artist is like the shaman or in, in some sense, it's their responsibility to be able to like see these bigger pictures across uh, implications across uh, with media and society. And so I think a lot of my questioning and, and has happened around that and even dealing with ritual and, and things like uh, really looking at religion from a, like an archeological archeological standpoint is to humanize technology and find ways of like looking at and unpacking our relationships with technology as far as a conceptual premise. Um, but yeah, impermanence was a great piece. Um, that that's in the similar vein to a lot of the work I'm doing now, which it's comes out of uh, an art practice. That's a subgenre in video art, which is called signal processing, um, which is about modulating or, glitching or uh, augmenting the signal of video. Um, so, you, you know, some people might call it an effect, a visual effect, but it's much deeper. My understanding of those processes are much deeper than an effect because an effect is uh, 
you can think of an effect in Photoshop giving you a default uh, end result where I'm more interested in it being an instrument where it's different every time. It can be played differently. And, well, and, and yeah, that, that makes perfect sense because some of your work, I can keep viewing, anticipating like the next moment of it. And then some of the pieces have like a hypnotic quality that is like subduing in the middle of all that chaos is that going that's going on because not only do you have a digital sound a digital scape but you also have a digital soundscape that goes along with it and so it's um a lot of um bombardment which mm. i find comforting you know i i but i have an ear for discordant music so my eyes are also enjoy that that dynamic and so when you're working with that, um, do they happen concurrently or do you work on the digital and then the soundscape? It could be a little bit of both. Uh, a lot of recent work in the past eight years has all used analog synthesizers. So like this Dofer system. Um, so it's Eurorack modulars that they're performative. Um, and I'll usually have the video and make several performances in the audio realm and then match. But it could also be programmatic where um, I'm changing MIDI controls to mm. perform video in real time, which is also sending out control voltage to the sound and making changes in the sound in real time. I'd say the biggest paradigm or the biggest methodology or practice that I am attracted to is working in real time. Everything has to be performative. Um, so I'm not rendering anything, visuals or audio. It all has to be done in real time and performative. You're listening to Art on the Air, WVLP 103.1 FM, and on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM. In your description is also Toolmaker. What exactly is that? Sure. So I, I developed, so in order to do things performatively in relationship to media, that means making your own tools. You could use things like, uh, well, I guess for artists that in the beginning, um, that would mean building your own programs, making code, right? Uh, and Maximus P, which I mentioned earlier, and now I use Touch Designer, are node-based programming environments. So that means you're programming with blocks of code. Uh, so it's a little bit easier for artists to get into and build really complex uh, set of uh, interactive components. Um, you know, whether that be controlling the brightness of an image based on your amplitude of your speaker or your microphone. Um, so th those kind of elements can get put into, put into the piece. Um, so, but the, the big thing for tool making originated for me within my own work, uh, making like for impermanence, right? I used, um, I mean, this is really geeky, so I don't know how interested <laughs> your it's audience okay. might be, but like I, I, one starts tinkering around and finding what's possible. And I looked at something called frame difference and a lot of frame differences used in uh, computer vision. So like, I'm, I'm not sure they, use, they probably use something more fancy now for like the self-driving cars. But frame difference is essentially looking at one frame and then the incoming frame and it compares what changed. And visually what that usually ends up being is the, the information that's changed gets imaged white and what didn't move gets imaged black. Um, and what's interesting that as far as uh, an, a 
an image making device, instead of using it as machine learning, if you take it out into the field, like in permanence, I took it to Times Square in New York City, and I looked at people sitting in the space and was interested in thinking about frame difference as a way of imaging time. And so if people sit still, they kind of get silhouetted and image black with all the people moving by the crowds and the screens moving. Um, so that that's similar ideas. Um, and that's a philosophical process. I like to call them philosophical tools because that way of processing an image has something kind of beautiful about it. It's poetic. It's, it has a metaphor within itself um, about time and how time gets imaged. It's so true. I've always adored seeing the world through the passing world through a plate glass window, you know, I yeah. get really captivated by it. And that's sort of what I felt like as you're viewing that it's just like, it's, you know, you can see what it is, but you can't really, I don't know. It's got this great distortion. Sure, And you can look at through film history, like man Ray was using like straight up glass filters for, for his pieces. Um, and the signal processing and video art history starts in the 1970s. And I connect a lot of my thinking to artists like Woody Vesalka and Stana Vesalka, Gary Hill. Uh, there's a lot of early development in the 70s at the Experimental Television Center in Owego, New York. And there's a National uh, Center for Experiments in Television in San Francisco. But there's a lot of really interesting people questioning what video was as a, as a creative medium in the 70s and a lot of people building their own tools because they didn't have access to, like there was video broadcast industry tools, but if an artist had black and white TV and they wanted color, they had to actually invent something called a colorizer. Um, and a lot of what I make now relates to some of those histories. I love that. I love that. I can't wait to to see the next um, installment of that. It's so interesting. I um, and I can't. I'm just trying to pull up the name of it now. Like, what did you call it? video? Video? Um, where you're talking? Yeah, video instruments. Yeah, it's excellent. Well, I, in 2016, my friend Jason Bernagosi and I, who went to undergrad and grad school, um, we developed apps for signal culture. So Experimental Television Center, I think, uh, was wrapping up its residency program in 2011. And I think in 2013 or 14, signal culture opened up. So it's a residency program that allow people to come and use these historic media art tools that I'm talking about from the 70s within a hybrid digital context. So they get to use contemporary tools and use them both together. And in 2016, I joined the board because I was helping uh, develop software applications that would have conversations with some of these 1970s tools, but also provide like contemporary 1920 by 1080 like video processes. And so we developed, it was, it was kind of crazy. We, we made six applications in a year. So that's um, wow. fully interactive. You can have sliders and MIDI controls and, each one did a different kind of process to an image. Um, we have about, and then now it's 2021. So five years later, we have about 10,000 user, users. Uh, wow. It's in about wow. 22 different university media art 
locations, um, 20, 22 universities have it in there available to their students. You know, something Excellent. I read about uh, recently is a, a process that moves away from the frame process that actually is recording literally like a continuous image than in video. Have you heard anything about that? I forgot what I read that, but uh, it's it's no longer like, you know, like uh, original motion pictures where a bunch of still pictures and that even has gone to video, but it's like a continuous that they're experimenting with. Have you seen anything about that or? It almost sounds like a high speed camera or something. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not really a high, because the, even a high speed camera takes like a bunch of individual pictures, but it's, it's a process that records literally a flow of video. But, uh, and I, I can't huh. remember where I read that, but, uh, I don't well, know. I'm thinking of like analog video. What was distinct about it is it is a flow, right? It's where digital video is, is more like it has to be turned into data. Right. Uh, it's, but still, in analog, you still have like so many frames of a picture that go into it. And I guess it. This is yeah, like thirty frames a second. Yeah, or whatever frame weight rate you do. So, right. <laughs> I'd like to sort of touch on current work, um, specifically sure. gleaners. You know, which oh, yeah. I which I viewed. <laughs> I, which I viewed multiple times because I found it, um, well, you know, this, I wanted to say the stills are as compelling as the video on Did it. Did you find and the full version? No, I didn't find the full version. Oh. I, in fact, I was trying to find the full version of a lot of them because some of them, those little clips were just too fast for me. You know, I wanted to like yeah. see the rest of it. But with, I found it, um, I found it disturbing and beautiful. Both the palette, the color palette was beautiful and yet, um, a little uh, distressing is almost too big of a word, but there was sort of like a creepy, crawly, undersea kind of quality. And I didn't want to look sometimes, but I was compelled to keep looking. So it was like a different experience with your work that I had with Gleaners. Well, Gleaners is a, a collaboration with Benjamin Rosenthal. He's really a, quite a leader in the field of, of queer media. And he, he's a professor um, at... Uh, KU University mm. and he came up and we, we spent two weeks together making that piece and so it has to do with a lot of non-binary uh, non-gendered bodies yeah. that are kind of like in this kind of ritualistic setting to figure out what their relationship is to frequencies and sound and Right. It was all that yeah. undulating was like undersea stuff. It was like looking at anemones but oh, you totally. it wasn't yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some tongues in there that undulate right. to oscillators. Uh, right, I know. So, you know, you could tell what they were, but it had this, like, undersea sort of mysterious, sure. you know, yeah. Well, we, we made some bit, pretty big discoveries. Uh, he was making animations in Maya. Yeah, so Gleaners was a big collaboration with Benjamin Rosenthal, and we made some pretty big uh, discoveries. He was creating animations in Maya, and I was taking that into touch designer and was able to attach oscillators to specific joints of the animation. Uh, so whether that be a, an elbow or fingers or tongue joints and was able to perform in real time, those moving and was kind of unpredictable because when you start attaching multiple oscillators to things, they start to move in really weird ways. Uh, and then of course, you know, they have bodily textures and things like that. So, so how can people see your work, Eric? So you can find my work at ericsalver.com or unseensignals.com. They'll both go to the same place. 
Excellent. Well, we appreciate you coming on Art of the Air, Eric Souther, a new media artist who, uh, as you see, is a it's a whole different type of art uh, than what most people think traditionally. Eric, thank you so much for sharing your journey and your art on Art on the Air. Thanks, Larry. Thanks, Esther. You've been listening to Art in the Air, and we'd like to thank our guests this week on WVLP 103.1 FM and Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM, our weekly program covering arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art in the Air is heard every Friday at 11 a.m. and rebroadcast Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP. Art in the Air streams live at WVLP.org and is rebroadcast on Monday at 5 p.m. Plus is also heard on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM every Sunday at 7 p.m. Also streaming live at LakeshorePublicRadio.org and is available on Lakeshore Public Radio's website as a podcast. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Radio. Thanks again to Greg Kovach, WVLP Station Manager, and Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operations for Lakeshore Public Radio. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art in the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant and the National Endowment for the Arts. Underwriters for Art in the Air, Walt Breidinger of Paragon Investments, and Marilyn Van, Arts Patron. Art in the Air is always looking for financial support. We'd like to thank our current supporters. If you're looking to support Art in the Air, Esther and I especially would invite you to become an underwriter of this program in particular. We have information on our website at breck.com slash AOTA. You can find out support information there. So don't just be an Art on the Air listener. Become a supporter or underwriter in whatever amount you're able to do so so we continue to bring you great content and this great local programming. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. And you'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That's breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event, or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Larry and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart. Express yourself to art and show the world your